Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. There was a spy mission a few years ago, a covert operation of a young person that did not infiltrate the ranks of Afghanistan. They didn't slide into Russia. They didn't go into North Korea, but they were on a covert mission. They were a spy. Her name is Gina Welsh. She grew up in Berkeley, California to a family that was Jewish. They were atheistic in their view of God. She went off to Yale University, and she decided as a curious author, as a curious writer, she wanted to know more about Christianity. So she decided to go as a spy to Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, the famous church of the late Jerry Falwell. So what she did was, as an atheistic Jewish young woman, she faked her salvation. She went in, she faked her salvation, she went to the new members class, she went to three Bible studies a week, she did this for two years. She actually went on a mission trip to Alaska and shared the gospel with homeless people, all the time being a non-Christian for the purpose of writing a book. So after two years of living among Christian people, she faked it for two years. And the question I have is, how come nobody noticed? Can a true person that claims faith in Jesus Christ just slip under the radar for two years and not anybody ask the question, what's going on here? She faked it. She faked her salvation for two years to write a book. And the book is called In the Land of Believers. How can atheists pass themselves off as evangelical Christians and not get caught after a certain amount of time? How can this happen? And this leads us to the greatest question that we'll be asking over the next few months. The ultimate question that we are faced with, and it is simply this. It is simply this. What does it mean to live an authentic, consistent Christian lifestyle in our world today? Full of hostility, full of opposition. What does it mean to authentically live out our faith? What does it mean to be those that are consistently living out an authentic Christianity? Because you see, we have a lot of casual Christianity around us. A lot of people that give lip service to Jesus with their lips, but their lives show no demonstration that he is the Lord and Savior and master of their lives. So how do we, how do we know what it means to live authentically, truly, consistently for Christ? And you see, what's going to happen is our culture is going to become more hostile to the message of Christianity. There's going to be more opposition to what it means to truly live a, a, a lifestyle that's authentic. And we've got to ask the question, how do we endure? How do we persevere? How do we stay strong in a culture that does not like authentic Christianity? Back in July, when our youth went to Glorietta for youth camp, the Daniel Doss band was the camp the camp band, and we, we really enjoyed their music. And one of the songs they sang was the song Direction. 
that we've been singing over the past couple weeks. And that song has meant a lot to our youth. It's meant a lot to me as I've reflected on the words of that song. And as I've, I've thought about the words of that song, and I've spent time with the Lord in my own personal preparation, personal quiet time, just thinking about where's God taking us next as a church, I can think of no better place than Hebrews chapter 11 with this song direction kind of serving as the impetus for what we're to think about. Think about the lyrics of the song that we're singing, direction. Be all I'm living for. Be all I hold on to. Keep my face on the floor until my direction is you. What does it mean to have Jesus Christ be all that we're living for? What does it mean for Jesus Christ to be everything to us? What does it look like for Jesus to be our direction. I like the words of the song, my life is a reaction. That may sound a little weird to you, my life is a reaction. As we'll see over the next few months, that's what faith is. Faith is a grace-generated reaction to God and his truth. When God comes and reveals himself to us, we respond, we react, we live a life of faith in what Christ has done for us. Our lives are a reaction. My life is a reaction. My life is a reflection of his glory. And these are the questions that the writer of the Hebrews tells us. And when we go to Hebrews chapter 11, it's often called the hall of faith. This is a big chapter. Over the next few months, we're going to be looking at these Old Testament characters. Noah, Abraham, Moses. Who who are these people of God, these ancients? And how did they live lives of radical obedience in a world that was hostile to them? The hall of faith. Now, we have to look at some background before we go into Hebrews chapter 11. We really need to go into Hebrews chapter 10. So I want you just to back up a little bit in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to start in verse 32 because it really sets the stage for what's going to happen in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 10. Starting in verse 32. So here the writer of Hebrews. And by the way, the writer of Hebrews is anonymous, so I'll just refer to him as the writer. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know if it was Paul or Luke or whoever. It's just the writer of Hebrews. It's anonymous. We'll find out when we get to heaven who wrote this book. Verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. These Christians were going through a very hard time. A lot of persecution They were being thrown in jail. They were having their property plundered. They were publicly being exposed and ridiculed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to address these Christians who are struggling in a world that really hates them. How do they stay strong? One of the words that's repeated over and over again is endure, endurance. 
My righteous shall live by faith. Because you see, to live the way that Christ has called us to live means that it's not going to be popular. It may be uncomfortable. It may mean that, that we don't compromise. Sometimes in our, in our Christian life, it's easier just to go with the flow. I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm going to live like the world. It's a whole lot easier just to go with the flow, to blend in, to not cause any troubles, than to live the way that God has truly called us to live. And I'm going to repeat this often throughout the next few months because I'm as affected by the book that I read about the Bible study that we're going to be doing radical. If you are truly going to live an authentic life of faith, you are going to be radical. You're going to be different. You are not going to be like the world. If you believe this book and live the way Christ calls you to live, you are going to be different. You're going to look different than the world around you. So we're called to live by faith. He says there in verse 38, the righteous shall live by faith. It doesn't say the righteous shall think by faith, shall believe by faith. It's an active word, the righteous shall live by faith. So we've got to ask a basic question this morning to set the stage for where we're going over the next few months. And the ultimate question that I want to try to answer for you from the book of Hebrews is simply this. What is faith? What is authentic, true Christian faith? What is it? And the writer of Hebrews gives us the answer. He he really gives us three answers to this question. And we see these in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 11. What is authentic Christian faith? So let's read Hebrews chapter 11, 1 through 3, and I encourage you, read all of chapter 11 before you come back next week, kind of as homework. I don't have time to read the whole chapter because it's really long, but read the entire chapter of of Hebrews chapter 11 because we're going to be camping out here over the next few months. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let me give you the first definition of faith. Now, these are not comprehensive definitions. There's more definitions we can find throughout the rest of the Bible. But but for the intensive purposes of what the writer of Hebrews tells us, let me give you the definition of faith. First of all, faith is expressed in a life of confident assurance in things not yet seen. Confident assurance in things not yet seen. Now I'm going to unpack that for you here in just a moment. Confident assurance in things not yet seen. Verse 1 is what we call a Hebrew parallelism. A parallelism is often used in the Old Testament, and the writer of Hebrews uses it here. You really have two ideas side by side, parallel to each other, and they really basically say the same thing. There's no new information, and so what you have here is you have two parallel statements that are used to kind of um, elaborate upon what he's saying, to give an enhanced meaning to what he's saying here, the description. And so we need to pay very close attention to the words in this text. How does the sentence start? You guys help me. How does the sentence start? Now, do you normally start a sentence with now? It goes back to what he's just talked about in chapter 10, 32, through the end of the chapter. He said, okay, I've set the stage for you. I've given you some information. Now, faith is, and he's going to define it for us. It expressed in confident assurance and things not yet seen. Notice the words here. Faith is the assurance. 
Assurance. That's one of the key passages in this title, in this entire chapter. It means solid assurance. It means confidence. It means being certain, being sure, I think, is what the NIV says. It's having this rock-solid certainty of these things that we are hoping for. We have a rock-solid, confident assurance in what? Things we cannot what? See. And then there's another word in there. The conviction. The conviction. The solid conviction. So you've got two words here. Assurance and conviction of things hoped for. Things not yet seen. And that word things there is very interesting. Things. That word can also be translated events. Not just things in general, but events. So we've got to ask a very important question this morning. What are those events, what are those things that we're hoping for that we can't yet see? Because he says our, our solid assurance is in things or events that we cannot yet see. We've got to ask the question, what are those things? If we're to have hope and faith and confidence in things unseen, what are those things? Is it just a fuzzy type of wishful thinking? I mean, is it, I hope these things work out. I kind of cross my fingers and and, and, kind of feel that these things are going to work out. No, the words there are a solid assurance and conviction of things not yet seen. Now go back up to chapter 10. He's just told us what these things are. Chapter 10, verse 34. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property since you knew yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. What are these things? A better possession. A better and abiding possession. Verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The second thing is it's a great reward. A better and lasting possession, a great reward. And then in verse 36, you will have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Okay, so we've got to ask our question. What's he talking about? What's the better possession? What's the great reward? What's the thing that he has promised? And it's none other than the full consummation of our salvation when we are in heaven in our glorified bodies and we see Jesus Christ face to face in the new heavens, in the new earth, and we live forever with him. What he's talking about is that day when we will be in heaven with Jesus to receive our reward. We will be with him forever. And he said, what's the the abiding possession? We've got a better and abiding possession. Our possession is is eternal life with Christ. But you see, here's the problem. What, what happens is we focus on all the possessions that we have now, don't we? We like to accumulate possessions. We may have houses, we may have cars, we maybe have iPads and iPhones and Blackberries and stereos and flat screen TVs and boats and stock portfolios and golf clubs and gym memberships and vacations to Disneyland and all this type of stuff that we're accumulating for ourselves right here. But what the writer's saying is we've got a better possession an abiding possession waiting for us. We cannot yet see it, but we have hope that that will one day happen. And here's the certainty. Nothing is better than Christ himself. I hope you believe that. Nothing is better than Christ himself. The word better is the key word in Hebrews. As a matter of fact, the word better shows up 10 times. It's the thematic word. 
Ten times throughout the writer, of, the writer of Hebrews uses it. Hebrews speaks of better things, a better hope, a better covenant, a better promises, a better sacrifice in Christ, better possessions. As we look in chapter 11, we will see the betters. For example, let's just skip down, look at chapter 11, verse 16. As you think about the life of Abraham, 11.16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. So Abraham was looking for a better country, heaven. 11.35, 11.35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. There's a better resurrection, a better life. And then he ends the chapter in chapter 11, verse 40 with, since God has provided something better for us. We have the greatest hope in all the world, a better and abiding possession with Christ Jesus as our treasure in heaven. The, promise, the problem is, is that we live for today, don't we? Where's our investments? Where's our eyes? Everything that we live for is focused on today, in the temporary. But there's something far better, Christ himself. As a matter of fact, the word things, back to chapter 11, verse, verse 1, things not yet seen. The only other time that word things shows up in the Bible, in Hebrews, is one other place in Hebrews, that word things. So, so, so skip over to Hebrews chapter 6 for just a minute and look at verses 17 and 18. You see the word things, the same word he uses here, and it kind of gives us a little bit more of a picture of what these things are. These better and abiding rewards, this possession, this, this eternal life with Christ. Hebrews six seventeen through 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, there's the word there, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for our refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What are the unchangeable things that God has promised? His promise and his oath. God has said it in an oath that he will indeed hold us to the end and we will have Christ as our treasure in heaven. So what is faith? It's living day by day with the confident assurance in things that we do not yet see. And what is that? It's, it's namely joy in heaven with Christ. That day gives us hope. But here's the problem. Here's the tension. This is, where, this is where we live. Here's the problem. We're not in heaven yet, are we? Hopefully nobody here's been to heaven and come back. If you have, see me afterwards and we may need to talk a little bit. What, what, we're not there yet. We live in a fallen world with distractions, with hurt, with all of these temptations. We live in a world with allurements, with seductions. And so we live in a world, we're a product of our world where we live by faith, not by sight, but oftentimes we want to live by things that we see. And so here's the real problem. Is Christ your treasure in the here and now? Because you see, how you view Christ now and how you see Christ in the future will determine how you live in the now. Are you living today, this moment, for things unseen? Are you living for things unseen? Or are you living for today? Far too many of us Christians, I think, are living for today and not for things unseen. Our hope, our hope is this abiding, constant, confident, solid assurance in God's promises. I'm reminded of that great hymn of faith, It is well with my soul. Remember the last verse? 
And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. You see, we live by faith right now. And that song says, when our faith becomes sight, on that glorious day, that day of days, that day when the, when the heavens are split open and the cry of the loud archangel and the trumpet of God and we see Jesus Christ himself descending, that's the day when it will all be a reality, when we see Jesus face to face. But we're not there yet. None of us here can physically see Jesus. So we wait for that day when we can see him and in the here and now we live by faith. So where is our gaze? is our gaze on Jesus. What motivates us to wait for that day? What's the motivation for us to wait for the day when we see Jesus Christ face to by face? It's confidence in the things not yet seen. It's in the assurance of things not yet seen. You see, in in times of extreme trials, in times when you're going through trials, or when Satan's coming against you with all of his power, or you're just going through tribulations, you're going through times of temptation, you're having a very difficult time, how do you survive those times? You live by faith. You you live by faith in things not yet seen. We live in the solid assurance that there is going to come a day when it will be worth it because we will see Christ face to face and we are solid in his grip. Again, listen to the words of it as well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Satan's going to come and buffet us. Trials are going to come. But what's our hope? Our hope is in Christ in the things not yet seen. So first of all, what the writer's telling us is faith is expressed in a life of confident assurance in things not yet seen, namely, eternal joy with heaven, with Christ. But secondly, secondly, faith is evidenced in a life of active and consistent obedience. Faith is evidenced evidenced in a life of active and consistent obedience. Now, where do I get that? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 starts with 4. Back to Hebrews 11, verse 2. 4 gives us a a clue here. It's going to set set the stage. 4, by it, by what? What he's just talked about in verse 1, faith. For by it, by their faith, the people of old received their commendation. The people of old. Who are they? Maybe your translation says the ancients. These are the Old Testament saints, the Old Testament believers. The people that have gone before us, they received their commendation now i think the king james version says they obtained a good report i think the new american standard says they gained approval the niv says that's what they were commended for what is the word used here it's the greek word we get our word martyr from it literally means this to receive a good report to gain approval And it's what's called the divine passive voice, meaning God himself is the one giving the approval. So here's the picture. God himself 
is bearing witness to the faith of these Old Testament people, and he's standing up to the testimony. He's standing up in the courtroom. He's giving testimony. He's giving evidence. He's giving a good report, and God is saying with with great pleasure, I commend these people for their faith, and I'm the one giving the testimony. I'm the one observing their life and saying they get a good report because of their life by faith. God puts his stamp of approval upon these people's lives by their faith. He commends them. He gives them a good report. He bears testimony to their lives. And as we will see in the lives of these Old Testament believers, their faith is not some fuzzy, wimpy, mamby-pamby type of faith. It is an active, strong, energetic, confident faith that actually does something. There's actually obedience behind what they're calling, what they've been called to do. It was expressed in radical obedience. Now, we need to be careful here, okay? We need to unpack this just a little bit over the next few weeks. You're not saved by works, okay? You're not saved by how good you are. You're not saved by how hard you work, how hard you try to obey the Ten Commandments. You are not saved by works, okay? Let's get that, let's get that clear. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's simply by God's sheer grace that we are saved. But once we are saved, once God has regenerated us, once God has made us alive in Christ, once God has given us a new heart, then we respond with a life of radical obedience to him. Faith that is consistent. Faith that perseveres. We will see active verbs. Able offered a sacrifice. Noah built an ark. Abraham left. Abraham sacrificed. Moses led. People conquered kingdoms. They shut the mouths of lions. Those are not passive, sit back, wait for God to act type verbs. Faith means that you actively pursue God in a life of consistent obedience. Active, consistent obedience. So let's get this really clear from the very beginning, because I think this is the problem with American Christianity. Faith Christian faith is not just having your head full of knowledge. It's not just a mental assent to the facts of the gospel. It's not just saying, I know the Bible stories. True Christian faith is that you obey what you know to be true. That you live it out in consistency. That there is a lifestyle of obedience that shows that you truly are a child of God. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which Christ prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why are we saved? We are saved for good works. We're not saved by our good works. We're saved for good works, that we would live lives that demonstrate that we are radically and actively and passionately following Jesus Christ. James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not Here's only deceiving yourselves. So here's where the rubber meets the road. You can have all the Bible knowledge in the world, especially when it comes to issues like finances or sexual immorality or, or anger or pride or greed or marriage or idolatry. You can know what the Bible says. And if we were to have a Bible quiz and I would ask you the questions, you would say, yes, I know that's what the Bible says, and you would nod your head. But that's not enough. It's got to move from you nodding your head to you living it out every day in a life of active obedience. You can't just be hearers of the word. The Bible says you need to be doers also. 
So the real deal, evidence, fruit, that you are truly saved is that your life will be an active, consistent, obedient lifestyle of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we'll see over the weeks, these Old Testament saints, they lived a life of faith. It wasn't wimpy, it wasn't fuzzy, it was passionately, wholeheartedly following the Lord. Thirdly, faith is grounded in a life that is a reaction to God's powerful word. Our lives are a reaction. If you don't like the word reaction, use the word response. If you don't like the word response, the word reflex. Reaction, response, reflex, whatever way you want to do it. It's a response to God's word. Now, how do we see that? Now, at first glance... It almost looks like verse 3 shouldn't belong there. Because what has he just said? He says, this is what the Old Testament saints were commended for. You'd think that he'd begin listing all the Old Testament saints. And he does that in verse 4. He starts with Abel. But in verse 3, he throws a little curveball in there and makes us wonder, well, why didn't you just start with the list? Notice what he says there. He says, by faith, we. We understand. Now, before he begins to talk about the Old Testament saints, he wants to make sure that we, we right in the here and now, before we move forward, understand what he's just been talking about. We. And so really, verse 3 is an illustration of verse 1. Notice what he says. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, every single person on planet Earth right now is experiencing something by faith, whether they know it or not. What is that? That the world was created. Let me just ask you to raise your hand. Was anybody there when God created the Earth? Were you there to watch it? Were you there to observe it? Were you there to ask God questions how he did it? Scientists may have some some guesses about how it did, but the bottom line is even the greatest scientific mind was not there to see it happen. So all of us have to, by faith, whatever view you believe, realize that something happened and we're here on planet Earth where uh, there's gravity, thank the Lord. We're not spinning out of control. There's There's the law of physics. We are here on planet Earth and we're trusting that this Earth has been created. And then notice what he says here. By faith. Circle that in your Bibles because you're going to see it repeated over and over again. By faith, by faith, by faith. That is the most important word. It's a dative of manner. And here's how it can be translated. Acting on the basis of faith. It's an active word. By faith. Actively, consistently, passionately, by faith. Dot, da, dot, da, da. And he'll go and tell you all the different things that happened to these Old Testament believers. By faith faith, acting on the basis of faith. What do we understand? We understand based on, the, on our faith that the universe was created by what? How was the universe created? What does he say right here? By the word of God. Don't ask me to explain it. I just believe it. There was nothing and all of a sudden God said something and there was everything. How does that happen? God's powerful word. And again, none of us were there to observe it. And so, obviously, somehow we've got to know that the universe was created by God's word because none of us were there. How do we know? Let me just ask you very, very generally, how do you know the universe was created by God if you weren't there? 
The only way you know how it was created is because you go back to what? Genesis 1, and you read it. The Word of God. So in the end, our faith comes from what God has told us in His Word. It's a reaction to God's Word. We live by faith in the power of God's Word. And by implication, if God tells us that the universe was created by His Word, by implication, everything else that God tells us in His Word, we are to believe. We are to live by faith in God's Word. Faith is a reaction to God's Word. Faith always demands an object. Faith always demands an object. It's not just some fuzzy out there, new age type of, I just kind of have faith. No, it's faith in what? God and his promises that are revealed to us in his word. And as we will see, these Old Testament characters responded in faith in God's word. Now, they didn't have the Bible at that time, but God still spoke to them and they obeyed God's word by his word. Psalm 33, 6 through 9 Don, can you hand well, go down there and get my water? Psalm 33. We, we read these words from the Bible that we're to believe. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded, and it stood firm. That just tells us point blank that God spoke it into existence. And we believe his word. But what's the problem in our world today? People don't believe God's word. That's why the world is in such a mess that it's in right now. Everybody's making up their own rules. Everybody's making up their own morality. Everybody's doing what they think is the best thing to do. And they're not living under the authority of God's powerful word. And here's my question to us evangelical Bible-believing Christians. I'm just going to talk to the Christians in in the house this morning. Most Christians here would die on the hill that this is God's inerrant, inspired, absolute word. None of us would, would flinch to believe that this is God's word. We die on the hill to say, this is the inspired, God-breathed, inerrant word of God, and we die on that hill. But, but, I wonder how many of us actually obey it in day-to-day obedience. You see, there's a big difference in saying, I I believe this is God's word, and living out what you believe about God's word. Oh yeah, I know what the Bible says about money and finances. I read it there in the scriptures, but I want to do my own thing with my money and finances. Thank you very much. Oh, I know what the Bible says about sexuality and having sex before marriage and living together before marriage, but I want to do what everybody else is doing. And yeah, I know that's what the Bible says, but I don't really care because I'm going to do my own thing. Oh yeah, I know what the Bible says about having pride or having unforgiveness, but I'm going to harbor bitterness. I know what the Bible says. I guarantee you, I can line up every teenager in this room and they can tell you the Bible says don't have sex before marriage. Everybody believes that. The issue is not do you believe it, but do you act upon that with consistent, obedient faith? You see, faith bows to the word of God and submits to it. We've said something for far too long in evangelical Christianity that doesn't really make sense. You know what we've said? How can I apply the Bible to my life? Wrong. 
you don't apply the Bible to your life. It makes it sound like your life's the most important thing and then you just kind of apply the Bible to your life. No, the real question we should be asking is how do I adjust my life under the authority of this Bible? This is the standard. I adjust my life under what it says. So here's the ultimate question. How? Okay, Sean, you've just told me what faith is. How, how do I do it? How, how do I live a life of authentic faith? How, how do I solidly and consistently and actively and passionately live for Jesus and obey his word? How do I do it? You, you may be thinking there this morning, what, what Pastor Sean is saying is really resonating with me because I know in my heart of hearts I'm not obedient. I'm not living that lifestyle that God's called me to live. How do I do it? Remember the words to our song? My life is a reaction to a Savior's passion to give his life a ransom to set his people free. My life is a reaction. A reaction to what? What's your life a reaction to? Your life is a reaction to this. And let me just say this. The more you begin to read about Jesus, the more you begin to pray to Jesus, the more that you begin to spend time with Jesus, the more that you grow to love Jesus, guess what's going to happen? You are going to be living by faith. You are going to be having that consistent lifestyle of obedience. You see, most often, faith is not something that grows by leaps and bounds in a short period of time. I've known some people that have had great growth spurts where they've grown immensely, but for most of us, it's that daily, constant submitting ourselves to God and through his power, we day by day begin to live by faith. You want a life of radical obedience? I could stand up here and say this. I could beat you over the head with a Bible and say, you better get your act together. I could appeal to your will and say, you know what? If I appeal to your will, if I just appeal to their will and said, they got to get their act together, live by faith, do it or else. God expects this of you. I could, I could do it that way. Would that be very successful? You'd walk out of here and say, well, you've really motivated me, Sean. You've made me feel more guilty than anything else. Or I could motivate you by being very emotional. I could tell you a very emotional story that tugs at your heartstrings, and you go, oh, that's really nice. And you leave this place. And I haven't accomplished what God's called me to accomplish. The thing that needs to happen to you this morning is your view of God needs to be enlarged. And my job as pastor is to help you see Jesus as great as he is. You see, when your heart is inflamed for Christ and you see Jesus and your mind gets blown by the beauty and glory of Christ and your, your view of God gets expanded and you see Christ for who he truly is, then your whole affections, your imagination is captured and I don't have to really tell you much because you've fallen in love with this Christ and you want to serve him because you've seen him as he truly is. My job only on these mornings that I come and, and preach to you is just to show you Christ in all of his glory. And guess what happens? When you see Christ... When you, when, you, when you begin to, to experience Christ, guess what happens? As the song says, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And guess what happens? There's a, there's, and we'll talk about this next week. There's an exchange that takes place. The things that you are living for get replaced by a greater thing. See, most of us are just living on cheap substitutes when Christ 
is the most valuable possession we can have. And what we've done is we've traded Christ for the substitutes. We need to replace the substitutes and get back to having a view of Christ as our treasure. What's the song? Be my direction. Living this life for who? For you. Make me your reflection, shining your love and truth. Be my direction. Keep my face on the floor until my direction is you. Not going to walk out this door until my direction is you. Can can you say that this morning? I'm not going to walk out this door this morning until everything about me is centered upon Jesus Christ, that he's my direction, he's my joy, he's my passion, he's my treasure, he's the one that I serve. I want to live a life of faith, pleasing to him. Can you say that? I'm not going to walk out this door until my direction is you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I'm just going to lay down the gauntlet of challenge. Don't leave this place until your direction is Jesus Christ. If you have to keep your face on the floor or you have to keep your face in your hands or keep your head bowed, it's a posture of prayer. You're not going to leave this place until Christ is your direction. And for many of you, it may mean I just need to come and just kneel at the altar this morning. I need to come before the Lord Jesus Christ and just lay myself bare before him and just tell him my heart. And we want to give you an opportunity to come down here and just pray. For others of you, it may just mean where you're sitting, I just need to to just close everything else out that's around me and just focus in on the Lord Jesus Christ. For others of you in this room, you really have no idea what I'm talking about because you don't have a relationship with God. And so the Holy Spirit may be tugging at your heart telling you that you need to repent of your sins and follow Christ for the first time ever by trusting in what he's done on the cross for you and in his resurrection giving you forgiveness of sins and new life in him. Worship, faith, is a reaction to revelation. You have heard the word of God this morning. And what are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? How are you going to react? Let's just spend a few moments in silent prayer before we go into a time of response this morning.